Happy Resurrection Day. We are going to be in Psalm 16. He is risen. Amen. He is alive. All right, let's pray one more time. Father, as we uh, have gathered on this Sunday Resurrection morning, thank you that the tomb was empty. That's because you did what you said you were going to do, Jesus. You said, destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I will raise it up. And you did just that. You proved in the very history in which we live that you are the true God who came down to save us, Emmanuel, God with us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Lord, thank you that you are on our side. You prove that by coming down, becoming one of us, entering into our pain, living the perfect life that we could never live, triumphantly defeating our mortal enemy, death itself, and rising and saying, because I live, you will live also. You said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Thank you that the saints are alive who have gone before us into your presence, ones like David and Job and many others who trusted in the living God through the good times and the not-so-good times. As we deal with a psalm, Lord, that's called a mictum, a psalm that really plums the depths of struggling with the human dilemma of abandonment and loneliness and are there true answers to what ails us? We pray that we would find our answers in the truth of the word of God and in the face of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I have a feed on my computer um, that pops up when I go to my homepage and I'll see kind of some of the current uh, stories that are going on in the world. And what will often pop up is something that's happening with a movie star or uh, some sort of scandal or dilemma that's going on. And the most recent one that I saw pop up, pop up on my screen was about Heath Ledger. Some of you may remember Heath Ledger. He was the Joker in the Batman movie. Uh, played that pretty scary part. Uh, he also was in another movie, movie called Brokeback Mountain, which was obviously a very controversial movie. But he was having some issues. He was having some drug problems, and he went through a breakup with his, I believe it was either his girlfriend or his wife. He had a young daughter that he was longing to be with, but he couldn't really see her. And there's a, a series coming out on Spike TV called I Am Heath Ledger, where the friends and family are going to open up and speak about the desperately sad final weeks of his life where he died at the age of 28, at the peak of his career. And uh, people who were around Heath Ledger said it got really sad. He, was, he couldn't sleep at night. He was trying to take sleeping pills. And he took a deadly combination of prescription drugs, uh, unknowingly, apparently, that uh, spelled his demise. While I was scrolling on that same website, up popped another story about an MTV reality star. His name escapes me at the moment. He was out shooting with his friends in the desert, shooting rifles, hunting, and turned the rifle on himself and shot himself in the head at 27 years of age. Uh, saw a picture of him pop up on my screen. Good-looking, handsome young man in his 20s. You look at his face, he looks like he has everything to live for. And he's dead. And on and on and on it goes. I can tell you as a pastor, I have uh, stood with families trying to make sense of tragedies from people dying 
in their 20s to all the way up to even having to do services for little children. We live in an agonizing world often that has question marks that penetrate our soul. One writer said that pain, the, the problem of pain is almost like a fish hook shaped in a question mark that really troubles our hearts. It pierces our hearts and we wonder because we're going to be real with each other this morning and we're real people in a world like this. Is there any real hope? Is this Christianity stuff pie in the sky? Do we say that Christ is risen but we're really not sure if there's real answers to these question marks that go so deep? And there are people checking out left and right. The other night I had a chance to uh, see uh, Mrs. Doubtfire again. Great movie, Robin Williams. <laughs> Crack up of a movie. And then I realized Robin Williams took his own life in the last couple of years. Now I heard that he had some sort of terrible illness and that was his way of trying to deal with it. But that's not the answer. But we, we have uh, veterans of the war. They're saying something like 20 plus veterans are committing suicide every day as they return back from the battlefield and deal with post-traumatic stress syndrome, which it can be a very terrible thing to deal with. And, and I'm sure you can make your list too. I'm sure you've seen stories that I haven't seen. You run in circles that I don't run in. And, and really, the question that comes up is, is, what does the Bible say about this kind of stuff? Are there answers in the Bible? Well, Psalm 16 is a place that I want to take you, and Mike did the reading from it, and the title of our message is Not Abandoned, Risen. And, you know, when you, when you talk about these issues of loneliness and abandonment, you know, some people you'll meet and they, they will be honest with you, I have abandonment issues, they might say to you. And we can understand that. Some of us have come from broken and divorced homes. Some of us have come from, you know, uh, dysfunction, some minor, some major dysfunction Every one of us comes from some level of dysfunction, some level of this sin-tainted world. Jesus dealt with uh, abandonment, by the way. Uh, he gave a very difficult teaching in John chapter 6 where people were following Jesus. His uh, popularity had really spiked. There were thousands of people following him. He fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And Jesus said, don't labor for the food that perishes. But for the food that endures to eternal life, and he began to share a sermon about his body and his blood, and he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And it was a controversial teaching, and it's still misunderstood by a lot of arms of uh, the Christian faith, but in the end, what Jesus was using was metaphorical language. He was saying, unless you take me in as your food, unless you believe in me, you're going to die. You must believe in what I'm going to do for you in my death and my resurrection. And John 6 says that people who heard this sermon, ironically, the verse is John 6, 66. After that day, followed him no more. And Jesus turned to the 12 and he said, do you also want to go away? And Peter responded, Lord, where else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Now, Jesus saw the crowds, but he knew what was in men, and he knew that men's hearts can be very fickle. You can have crowds one day lauding you as the superstar, and the next day you're the goat. But Jesus turned to his inner circle, and he said to them, Do you want to leave too? You ever been at a crossroads point in your life like that? We kind of wonder if you're standing alone. Do you want to go away? 
I mean, Jesus asked that question of his own intimate followers, and Peter answered it beautifully. Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. At the very end of the book of John, Peter decided to go back fishing. He said, I'm going fishing, and the other ones went with him. And a friend of mine many, many years ago addressed a crowd like this and said, have you gone back fishing? Have you stopped following the Lord Jesus Christ? And then he paused and said, how is it? Life can be hard, and sometimes it causes us to question God. And sometimes we say, I'm going back fishing. I'm going to go back to my old life. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to find your answers? Are there real answers? You know, Jesus said, you're all going to leave me this night. You're all going to abandon me. Peter said, oh, I'm not leaving you, Lord. I'll die for you. But Jesus said, before the cock crows you're twice, you're going to deny me three times. You're, not even, you're going to say that you don't even know who I am. Are you so strong, Peter? Now, Peter did try to defend the Lord in the garden. We know he was brave there, but he scattered, and everybody scattered. And then, you know, the famous moment on the cross when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he quotes Psalm 22, and Ray Vanderlaan said, You could say it this way, My God, my God, why have you left me all alone? We sometimes can be in a crowd and we can feel alone and we all know that we're going to have to die alone. Now, we could, you know, be a, a person who dies in a war or that kind of thing, maybe others around us, but ultimately we're going to have to face this human dilemma, this death question, and this is what Resurrection Sunday morning is all about, that there is an emphatic answer to man's dilemma. The question is, will we believe? Will we trust in the risen Lord. David was a man after God's own heart, but David had his share of abandonment issues. Uh, Saul was trying to kill him through much of the book of 1 Samuel. You see this crazed Saul, and David's on the run for something like 20 years. David has to run from Saul. He has to live in caves, and he has to go through uh, knowing that he's supposed to be the king, and yet uh, he has to hide from this crazy man named Saul. And David penned a lot of his incredible psalms in the midst of adversity and difficulty. And even when David was asking very real-life questions like, Lord, where are you? My tears have been my food all night long. The people who say, I shouldn't trust in you, mock me. And they say, where is your God now? David went through all these uh, problems and these issues. And he wrote many psalms, and Psalm 16 is called a mictum of David. If you look at the psalms when you read through them, you'll find that a lot of them have headings like this, a prayer of David, a psalm of David. Uh, there's different authors of psalms, but this is a mictum of David. And uh, you might ask the question, well, what does a mictum mean? What, what does this word mean? If you're interested, it's in uh, the heading of six different psalms, Psalm 16, 56, and 57, 58 and 59 and 60. So you can just write down for your notes uh, Psalms 56 through 60, except for this Psalm, Psalm 16. Uh, the superscription that is at the heading of these Psalms is occasioned usually by some sort of great danger that's going on, and so the Psalm is written. There's a rare, real mystery about the word mictum, and different Hebrew scholars uh, and Bible scholars have taken their best shot at it. And some Bible scholars say that maybe the best way to define mictum is precious, that the word means precious. So you could say a precious psalm of David. 
And the idea of precious is a word that maybe uh, you don't have in your vocabulary all the time, but the big fisherman, Peter, actually used the word precious over and over again. He called God's promises magnificent and precious promises. He called the, the blood of Christ the precious blood as of a lamb without spot or without blemish. He called Jesus the precious cornerstone. There's a... a Testimony by John Corson where he talks about losing his wife and daughter to the same accident in a span of, I think it was about 20 years, the same blow to the head, the same situation, and a Bible verse that God had given to him, Jeremiah 29, 11. But he said that at one point he and his wife were going through stuff in the bedroom of their daughter that they had gone to heaven, and they found a locket of her hair in a little bag, a little plastic bag, and and, and they didn't realize it was there, but she had cut her hair for some sort of cancer walk or something like that. And when they, ha- they found a, some of her hair, they said, that's precious. Uh, what becomes precious to me in the ups and downs of life is really whether or not there's precious promises to hold on to. Uh, scholars have said that a mictum can also have the idea of golden So it has the idea of value. In the ancient world, value was really measured by weight. And the word for God's glory or the word for honor in Hebrew is kavod. And in the ancient world, they used to assess value by the weight of something. And when we say God is glorious or there's a a point that's that's made that's substantive, we might even say this, this, this may be from the 60s or 70s, that's heavy, man. And if you're Raul Reese, you say, it's heavy, man, heavy. And what we mean is that's a substantive point. That's one of the best ways to measure the glory of God is there's weight to it. In in your life, what you honor is what you give weight to, what you give value to. What you spend your life doing is what you truly honor. You can give lip service to a bunch of different stuff, but what you truly honor is what you value, what you give your time, talent, and treasure to. God so loved you, he so valued you that he gave his only son. Scholars say mictum can mean golden, it can mean precious. Maybe we could say this is a, probably a psalm that could be termed this way, and remember the psalms were songs, a precious golden song of trust. You guys remember the old phrase, this, is, this dates me a little bit, but people used to say, if things were looking good, maybe you made a good sales presentation, or maybe the stock market was right, they would say, you're golden, bro. You're golden. Anybody remember that? Am I totally dating myself right now? You're golden. Well, the Word of God is golden. It's, it's valuable. This is Psalm 16. Today is April what? 16th. Sometimes when I don't know what to read in my Bible, I just take the psalm that matches the day of the month and I read it. God always meets me there. Can I give you a suggestion? If you're wondering, how do you start to read your Bible? I just don't know how to do it. Can I suggest, just read the psalm or proverb that matches the day of the month. That's what we're doing this morning, by the way. I just went like this. What should I tell these people, Lord? Hey, it's the 16th of the month. Some of you might think, how does Pastor Michael pick these messages? That's it. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. It was much more spiritual than that. The Bible says that 
God's commands are more desirable than gold, yes, than fine gold. Psalm 119, verse 127 says, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. In the book of Proverbs, it says, If you seek uh, wisdom as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. God's word is golden, man. It's golden. It's precious. When you're walking through stuff, don't let the devil keep you from your Bible. If you're feeling dry right now, I'll tell you, most people I talk to and they say, Pastor, I'm just not feeling it. I'm feeling dry. I'll say, when's the last time you read your Bible? And they'll say, 2004. (laughs) I'm like, well, there's probably a connection there. See, the Word of God is precious. And in Christ Jesus, Colossians 2, it says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote a commentary on the book of Psalms. It's called The Treasury of David. He observed that a mictum, or the golden psalms, begin with prayer and ply trouble, but abound in holy confidence and close with songs of assurance and ultimate safety and joy. A colleague of Spurgeon's believed mictum to mean hide and signifies a secret or a mystery which indicates the depth of the doctrinal and spiritual importance in these sacred psalms. In Spurgeon's words, he wrote, If this be the true interpretation interpretation of mictum, it well accords with others of being precious, and when the two are put together, they make up a name which every reader will remember and which will bring the precious subject at once to mind. He called this psalm the psalm of the precious secret. I added the word golden, so if you want a full description, it's the psalm of the precious golden secret. This almost sounds like a movie title, doesn't it? (laughs) See, the word of God is precious, and it goes deep into the soul. These are the precious promises that we have from God. I was reading on the internet, and one writer wrote this about the point of view of a mictum. He said, I found in a blog by Skip Moen a helpful He's helpful in defining Hebrew words in practical application. And he's talking about mictum, and he says, When life attacks us, we often deflect the blows by saying, The ways of our Lord are hidden from us in this life. Job is a good example. We know what was going on in the heavens, but Job did not. We know God is good, says this writer, but there are times when we can't reconcile his goodness with our circumstances. So we defer explanation by saying, God is doing something through me that is for the good of others. It might not be what I want, but it will bless someone else. A mictum helps us realize that even if God does use us as a vehicle for other purposes, he is still our individual protector and deliverer. He is still my God. When the horizon is dark and the storm is coming, God still saves me. On Good Friday, we went out to Sun City and we laid to rest a young man named Eric who died at 32 years of age. He's the brother of Jamie. Jamie is the young lady that often is here in the front row on the wheelchair. She's got a great attitude. She travels a long distance to come and fellowship with us and she's brought those who take care of her with her as well. And she called me and said, uh, my brother Eric stopped breathing and um, we went out on Good Friday and we, John the Beloved was, was with me doing some music and we went out to walk this family through this tragedy and we were out there in September of 2015 to lay another family member to rest. This uh, mom and dad, Larry and Michelle, take care of uh, 
kids that are going through some tough circumstances with their lungs and dealing with cerebral palsy and those kinds of things, things that you know, make their lives very challenging and difficult. And so uh, as I was listening to some sermons in the morning, uh, I had heard a lady who was talking and she said she had a whole household of kids. I think they were adopted and multiple kids had to go through uh, organ transplants. And that's always a very challenging and difficult thing. And, and so uh, she said, you know, the Lord's taught us that life is one long journey of faith. And she was talking to the interviewer and he was saying, how do you get through this stuff? And one organ don uh, transplant after another, how do you deal with this? And she said, it's just a long journey of faith and the Lord's taught us to pray and completely depend upon him. And so um, in the moment, I was standing in Sun City and, and I was uh, talking about this, this uh, message that I heard and I brought it up and the mom stopped me in the middle of my message and she said, that's... I think that's the Lord that you brought that up. And I said, why? She said, well, Eric was able to donate his heart and his eyes. And uh, they're going to go to a donor, and we're hoping to meet that donor one day. And I said, it's interesting that you brought that up, because last year in our church, we had a miracle happen that was similar. And here's what happened. We have a family in the congregation who uh, got a phone call, and I think it was their nephew, who was hit by a car, and he was killed and so uh, we had, simultaneously, we had another church member in our church. Um, Kurt, are you here this morning? Kurt, you, Kurt, would you stand up for a second? Everybody look back at Kurt for a second. All right, I'm going to ask you to stay standing because I didn't tell you I was going to do this. But So Kurt uh, needed a heart really bad. And he was, they tried to push him up on the donor list because he was in desperate need and it was getting to a point where you were at a critical place and they were, gonna, they were gonna either do a mechanical heart correct or... And so all of a sudden, news came to Kurt's family that a heart was available. And some of you have heard this story, but this young man that died on Good Friday, Kurt received his heart on Easter Sunday morning. And they were both connected in some way to this congregation. Thanks, Kurt. I understand uh, Kurt shared with me that he's going to meet the family, I think, later this year. Is that correct, Kurt? You're doing a 5K with him at the end of the month? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Could you, is it possible for you and I to put in our worldview as Christians that if we're going through something, it may not be for us at all? What, what do you mean? I, I don't like the sound of that, Pastor Michael. Oh, I'm with you. I don't like it either. But it is, is it possible for you to put into your sphere of looking at your spiritual life this morning that maybe some stuff that you go through, God's going to use it for somebody else? I mean, after all, Christ didn't come for himself. He came for you. What was in it for him? Oh, a terrible death, mocking, pain. Yes, he triumphantly rose from the dead, but he did it for you. This is how we know what love is. You know, we get so self-centered and so focused on ourselves that we think that this life is all about us. It's so hard to move that focus point. Say, Lord, you mean this life is not all about me? No, it's not all about you. It's about God's glory. 
you know, the church used to say that man exists not for his own, you know, well-being, if you will, but for the glory of God. If you shifted your focus this morning and said, you know what, if my life is about God's glory, then stuff that comes my way may be about his glory and other people's good and may not even have anything to do with me at all. That is so hard. Now, God does promise to work all, how many? All things together for good to those who love him. But I think you get the point. Now, you can tell that Pastor Michael is going to have to move quickly through Psalm 16. <laughs> I haven't even started. But before I do that, turn to Psalm 57. <laughs> this is another one of those mictums of David. It's for the choir director set, set to El Teshef. That's the musical setting. A mictum of David, Psalm 57. If you have the heading, it says, When he fled from Saul in the cave. So we know the backdrop. He cries, Be gracious to me, Psalm 57, 1, O God. Be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in thee. And in the shadow of thy wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. Selah, that's a pause in the music. Think about it. Pause and ponder. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Notice, be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let thy glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Oh, pause. <laughs> Selah. Think about it. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to thee among the nations, for thy loving kindness is great to the heavens, and thy truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Go back to Psalm 16. Sometimes David in the cave went back and forth. He's like, man, the enemies are everywhere, Lord, but I'm going to praise you anyway, and they're going to fall into the pit that they prepared for me. And David realized that life's answers were found in where you focus. Amen? And it is hard when we're going through tough times and there's you know, people bagging on us and speaking maybe lies about us at work and we have family issues and families are divided over this or that. Sometimes somebody dies and families won't talk to each other because they fight about the money and it's just sad. And you can see the worst of humanity and you're like, man, Lord, are there any answers? Is my prayer going any farther than this ceiling right now? Do you know what I'm going through? David had moments like that. And then he would write a mictum and he'd say, there's a precious golden secret I want you to know about. God knows where you are and what you're going through. He understands. Jesus went through the same stuff. So David, when he writes Psalm 16, as we'll move quickly through, says, preserve me, Psalm 16, 1, keep me safe, NIV, O God. I take refuge in you or I put my trust in you. Preserve me is shamar in Hebrew. It means protect. It's what Adam was supposed to do. He's supposed to be the, the one who watched over and protected. 
He was called to guard and protect what God had entrusted to him. And David here is seeking to God, is uh, going to God as a refuge like a bird goes under its mama's wings. You ever seen a picture of a, the mama bird? And you don't realize it, but there's like seven little chicks underneath her and they all go scattering when she lifts up her wings. <laughs> They're all over the place. And Jesus said to Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Let me ask you, where have you run for refuge? Have you run to Christ or everywhere else? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways that you can drown your sorrows and not face life, but there's too many people checking out that way, my friend. God is a tower of strength against the enemy. Psalm 63.3 He's been a refuge for me and I'm going to take refuge in the shelter of his wings. Selah. That's Psalm 61.4 God's loving kindness, the psalm, psalmist says, is better than life. And so I run to refuge for him. Some of you think, ah, that sounds weak, Pastor Michael. I'm a, I'm a self-made strong person. I, I don't want a crutch. Oh, you're going to need one sooner or later. There's people leaning on stuff all around. There's no person that's going to make it through this life without having to lean on something or someone. The question is, where are you going to lean? And will it hold you up when you do? Amen? Amen. Is it going to be strong enough to support you? Is he going to be? She going to be? I said to the Lord, look at verse 2, Psalm 16. I said to Yahweh, Thou art my Adonai, my Lord. Two different Hebrew words. I have no good besides thee. You know, David was a tough guy. That's, this is the dude that took down Goliath. I heard a story about a dad who uh, would quote Bible verses and Bible characters when he wanted his kids to go to bed. And he used the story of David here and he would say to his kids, Go lieth down. So there you go, anyway. <laughs> Either that or I'm going to hit you in the forehead and make you lie down. <laughs> I have no good besides thee. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Adonai in the Hebrew picture language means the first judge. If God is your Lord, you run everything by him first, including your sorrow and your joys. That's what Adonai means. He's Lord, master. First strength, my stayer, my help. Everything in my life I run by him first. He's my Lord. I don't say to my Lord, I don't do windows, by the way. I'll do everything else, I don't do windows. No, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? If you're going to call me Lord, then do what I say. Or don't call me Lord. If we say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, we're saying he's the first judge. I run everything by him first. Where else will I go? I have no good besides you. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? All your gifts, all your talents, the fact that you can even think right now that your involuntary organs are pumping blood in your body is not your doing. God designed it that way. The fact that you can see through the, these incredible things called your eyes you ever examined the scientific uh, view of the eye? It is an amazing creation of God. 
You know, Darwin said that maybe the freckle evolved into an eye. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that. But anyway, but then he kind of retracted it. He, say, he really said, there's no way. There's no way. You see, the creation declares that there's a God. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. He wasn't saying he wasn't good. He was saying, why are you calling me good? Do you believe I'm good? Well, there's no one good but God alone, and I am God. I think Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler, but you're not, therefore you need me. Go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. What? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know the commandments. How have you done with those? Oh, ever since I was young, I kept them. Okay, just one more thing. Go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. You want to know? There you go. <gasps> Is there an option B? A door be? <laughs> I like options, Lord. No, follow me. And I will show you what treasure is about. The Bible doesn't say that everybody has to sell everything. It was the fact that the rich young ruler's God was his money, and Jesus knew it. Look at verse 3. As for the saints, these are the holy ones, the followers of God who are in the earth, they are majestic. Look, we need God, but we also need the help of others. And sometimes the saints become God's hands and feet when we're going through stuff. Amen? They are majestic ones in whom, David says, is all my delight. At one point in 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 22, David ends up in a cave and it says, everybody who was in debt and everybody who was disenfranchised gathered to David in the cave. They all, they all gathered together and they were in the cave together. Sometimes that's the best we can do. Hey, man, you got, you got a couch? Yeah, but I live in a cave, but if that's all right for you, man. They gathered together because they saw in David something greater. Look at, it says, verse 3, the saints are the majestic ones. You ever say that to your friend? Hey, how do I look today? You look majestic, man. <laughs> do you know that's biblical? You should try that on your friend. Majestic. You blow them away. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God, NIV, run after other gods, gods verse 4, will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their libations of blood, nor shall I take their names upon my lips. Look, there are options, and in the ancient world, most people were not atheists. They just chose false gods, and they ran after false gods, including Israel. This was Israel's major problem. It was idolatry. And David says, if you're in trouble and you go for door B, false gods, your sorrows will be multiplied. There have been people in trouble that end up in a cult and their sorrows become multiplied because that cult begins to manipulate them and instead of preaching the gospel of grace and that they're free, they teach them you got to do this and you got to do that. I'll say this this morning because it's true and I'm not trying to offend anybody, but our Jehovah's Witness friends for many years, I don't know if they've changed this recently or not, told their followers that you cannot get a blood transfusion because that's drinking or taking blood. That's not what it means. The ancient pagan practices were to drink the blood of animals because they thought somehow there was magic power in that. And God said, no, don't do that. And in a misinterpretation by our Jehovah's Witness friends, many of them are certainly well-meaning, but their leadership got this one wrong. People died because they thought they couldn't get a blood transfusion. 
That's not what this is saying. This is saying if you run after false gods, you're going to end up dying. They cannot deliver you because they're not real. And if there is any power behind them, it's demonic. Look at verse 5. But David says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. He is, verse 5, my cup. Thou dost support my lot. Look, I'm going to go to God. I don't know where you're going to go, David might say, but I'm going to God. David's son, Solomon, made this mistake. He loved many foreign women. It's 700 uh, wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, some combination of that, 1,000 women in his life. Some people say the reason that he had all these women in his life was for political reasons. They were political marriages. That may be true in some of the cases, but it says he loved them. And in fact, it says that they, for, for him to try to appease them, turned his heart away from God. And Solomon, who wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, and was one of the wisest men that ever lived except for Christ himself, his heart was turned away excuse me, <clears throat> from the living God. Somebody did a uh, history on Bible characters, and they said, what's the percentage of Bible characters that actually finish well? You know, it's not an impressive list. Solomon didn't finish well. Moses didn't even get to go into the promised land. You start looking at these major Bible characters, and you're like, man, it's not always how one starts, right? It's how one finishes. And so he says, the boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Yes, I have a good inheritance, verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind or my heart instructs me in the night. You ever had a time when you're going through stuff and you can't sleep? Uh, I heard Chuck Smith telling a story. He said when he was young, he used to help out at youth camps and he would tell the the youth group, he would say, uh, if you guys want to get away with stuff, just wait until I fall asleep because nothing will wake me up. Nothing. You could pull a truck through here and I won't wake up. So, of course, he would fall asleep and they would raise all kinds of havoc in the camp because Chuck told them. Don't do that. If, By the way, if you're a camp counselor, don't tell them that stuff. <laughs> well, he said, as I got older, I would have trouble sleeping and I would wake up in the night and I would try to do all those things. Have you tried to do them? Count sheep, you know, whatever. <laughs> I guess the best thing is talk to the shepherd instead of counting sheep, right? And so he said he began to do that. And he said the Lord began to visit him in the night. And instead of him just wasting time tossing and turning, he would begin to pray. And he said the Lord would pour in incredible, precious jewels into his heart in the middle of the night. So if that's you and you're having trouble sleeping, the Lord can meet you in the night. He can instruct you in the night. Sometimes that's the time we listen the best. Amen? It's hard to listen sometimes when we're running to and fro. Finally, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, David says, I will not be shaken. See the word continually, verse 8. I have set the Lord continually. That's a decision that you and I make. David made the decision on the run, hiding in caves, and we have to as well. We have to set the Lord, how often? Continually before us. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in shalom, shalom. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Wherever you decide to put your focus, that's going to determine your attitude. Amen? Amen. If you are focused on your circumstances and bitter people, troublesome people, freeway traffic, 
complaining relatives at Easter lunch and dinner. If you're sitting next to them now, don't try not to look at them. <laughs> look, we got problems, right? And life comes down to where you focus, or more specifically, on whom you focus. Golf is a game I'm trying to master. Can I get a witness? How many of you have just given up? Most of you are not even sharing in this pain. It's a, you are wise people. The ball, look, I used to play baseball. The ball doesn't move. It's just there. It seems like it would be so easy. But somehow, some way, I believe someone moves that ball when I try to hit it. Because if they didn't, it would go straight. But it goes, and <laughs> my ball has spent time on green pastures and sometimes in not so still waters. And then I watched this old guy, <laughs> I'm sorry, but this, this older gentleman, he looked like he could barely move. And one after the other, and he walked by, and I was looking for a pearl of wisdom, and he walked by, and he wasn't walking so great. But he hit every shot great, and he goes, this game is about one thing. <laughs> I'm like, what's the one thing? What's the one thing? Get it, give him a 20. What's the one thing? It's all about focus. And off he went. <laughs> That's my problem. <laughs> I'm over the ball. Anybody like me? Anybody got attention deficit disorders? I'm <laughs> multiplying. I, okay, here we go. <laughs> Let's get back focused. Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad in light of the fact that I'm going to focus on God. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Look, there's so many things in life, verse 8, that can shake you up. And, you know, they're all there. And the only way you're going to shake them off is having this one who will allow you not to be shaken by all the stuff going on. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Look, David is not talking about his geographic circumstances. He's talking about his soul. Verse 10, for thou will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Now, some of you may be wondering, this is an Easter resurrection Sunday morning. What is he doing in the Psalms? Anybody want to be honest? You guys heard, you've, you've read the placard before of the guy that shows up to church and the placard says, this morning's message, the resurrection. And he's shaking hands with the pastor and the caption says, you know, he kind of looks up to the side and he goes, man, every time I come here, this guy preaches the same message. <laughs> yeah. If you come once a year, that's probably what <laughs> the message is going to be. And today is no exception because this is a prophecy about the resurrection written 1,000 years before Jesus was ever born, and it says this. 
You, God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That could refer to David or to the Messiah, but this one definitely to the Messiah. Neither will thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Now, this theme is going to be picked up in the New Testament, but let's read the last verse and then we'll, we'll move to the new and we'll be done. Thou will make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and in thy right hand there are pleasures forever. Now let's turn to the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Go to chapter 2. Peter's preaching. This great fisherman who denied the Lord, now filled with the Holy Spirit, is preaching on what's called the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 2. Acts is the story of the early church as it unfolds. Peter went from one who denied the Lord to powerfully preaching Jesus Christ in the middle of the city where all these events happened. And he said these words. Men of Israel, 2.22, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by, to God, by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, Acts 2.23, that's Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, now the quote from Psalm 16, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence. He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou will not abandon my soul to Hades, that could mean the grave or the place of the departed dead, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Now, how did Peter come up with this? I think the Lord probably taught him about this. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou will make me full of gladness with thy presence. Brethren, says Peter, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, writing the psalm, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead, here's the sense of predictive prophecy, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, if you were a Jewish person standing there and Peter preached this to you, how would you respond? If you realize that somehow you had a role maybe by yelling, crucify him, in this one being nailed to the cross, and now you are discovering that he is God in the flesh who came down. Can you imagine? We've all done some bad stuff, right? You know, we've all made our mistakes. Can you imagine having to deal with the reality that you affirm the crucifixion of God in human flesh? 
Try to live with that one for a couple of days. You see, the Holy Spirit was operating when Peter was preaching, and the people, it says, when they heard this, 37 Acts 2, they were pierced to the heart, almost like the nails that pierced Jesus' hands and feet. They got pierced in the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What now? What do you do when you've done this to God? There's been some incredible depictions of artists uh, who have uh, tried to show the idea of the Roman soldier who nailed the nails into Jesus' hands and feet. And they, they've kind of taken the mallet from the soldier and put it in our hands because it was me, it was my sin that nailed him to the cross. It was my transgression. It was the handwriting of ordinances and so forth that was against me that he nailed to the cross. It wasn't nails that held him to the cross. It was love. And Jesus Christ was crucified in that city. And the people are listening and they know that there's been rumors of a resurrected Christ and they were pierced to the heart and they said to, the, to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what now? What shall we do? Maybe you're asking that question this morning. Maybe you've come into this place and you've looked in all the wrong places for the answers and now you've, you've heard about this risen Lord. Maybe you heard Sunday school stories as a child, but for all, pract all practical purposes, you've been a practical atheist. You have not lived your life for God. You've made maybe multiple mistakes and you're reaping the consequences and now you've come in maybe, you know, like we said this morning at the... Uh, Sunrise service, maybe you were dragged here. <laughs> Pastor, said, Pastor John said drug, and then he said, no, dr not, not drugged. But then maybe some of you were drugged, I don't know. But if you were, we need to talk. Uh, let us know who did it to you, and we'll... Anyway, and here you are. And there's a lot of people, just to be candid, that they, they, they come on Easter and Christmas, and, and we're glad you're here. But, but the question is, not so much right now, but what are you going to do after this? Where are you going to find your answers? What are you going to live for? I was in a conversation recently with a man, and we were talking about spiritual things, and, I, and you know, kind of, there was some dancing around his commitment to the Lord, and and I said, well, maybe the Lord wants you to become a Christian because he wants to use your life to reach others. Have you thought about that? It's not just about your conversion, although that's obviously very important, but the Lord has a plan for your life and he wants to use you. Is that in your consideration as you put off this most important decision that you know is true? Well, Peter responded. They said, what should we do? And Peter said, repent. Verse 38, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God, our God, shall call to himself. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And so then, those who had received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about, how many? 3,000 people trampled their way to Calvary on the day of Pentecost. Peter had no megaphone, no amplification, but he was as bold as a lion 
because he had the power of the Holy Spirit and his life had been transformed by Jesus Christ. And so today, there's an opportunity. Now, in that day, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in the middle of Jerusalem was the biggest sacrifice for some people of their entire lives because to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ meant you believe Jesus is the Messiah and you could immediately be extricated and disassociated from all of your kin because what they would say is we, the Jewish people largely said we don't believe he's the Messiah and you could be kicked out of the synagogue, no longer have a job, lose your family, you could be dead to your family. To be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem was a huge decision. Sometimes in churches to you know, not embarrass people, we say, okay, everybody close your eyes and, and, and bow your heads and then just slip up your hand really quick. Slip it up. <laughs> just quick and get it down. And that'll let me know that you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I know what we're saying, but could I suggest to you that to be baptized in the middle of Jerusalem wasn't... It was... I'm making a declaration. I believe. And whatever it costs me, it costs me. Last Sunday on Palm Sunday, in between services, uh, some of our church members came up and said, Pastor, there's been a bombing in Egypt in a church, two churches. Forty of our brothers and sisters went to heaven. I found out that um, there was some association even with those people uh, back in Egypt, some folks that were here, even at that service, had some connections back there, and thankfully their family members were okay. But here's the point. In some places of the world, this isn't about, in addition to your portfolio, this, is, this could cost you everything. And that's what the Lord's going to ask of you. He's going to ask you to follow him, even if it costs you everything, to gain eternal life. So here we are on this Sunday morning and I look around and I know many of you, but I don't know all of your stories. And I would just say to you, this would be a day that if you're not sure, if you died tonight and you're not sure that you would end up in heaven, you don't even know how to answer the question. If God said to you, why should I let you in? And you are like, uh, uh, make sure. The way you can make sure is you repent of your sin and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And he'll come into you, and he'll give you resurrection life. Would you pray with me, Father? I just want to pray for this group of people, this precious group that's come out on this Easter Sunday morning to honor you. Thank you for all the believers in this room that they have staked their destiny on the truth of the resurrection, and they are followers of you and they go out on the highways and byways and try to make a difference. I, I pray that you'll refresh their faith. I pray that they'll have their own mictum to write about your goodness, that instruction that they've received in the night watches, times when you've shown them that you are more than sufficient through the question marks of life. But if there are those that are here, Lord, who have not met you personally, they're not sure they're gonna end up in heaven, and not everybody does. Father, help them make sure. And Lord, for those who are prodigals in this room and they've been running from you, I pray that you would bring them home and I pray that they would find that there is a place for them at the table.